All right, guys, round three of our New York mini-series, where we are showcasing some of the incredible stories of people from Northern Ireland who have gone on to do incredible things in New York City and beyond. And today, we are certainly holding no punches. Terry George is an Oscar-winning film director from Belfast, known for movies like Hotel Rwanda, The Shore, In the Name of the Father, and much, much more. After serving a term in Longcash Prison in his youth, Terry moved to NYC where he started working as a journalist and writing on the side for theatre. From there, he went on to write and direct his own films, working with some of the greatest actors in the world, including, <laughs> I mean, I just, I just can't get over this, Christian Bale, Helen Mirren, Daniel Day-Lewis, Sophie Oganito, Joaquin Phoenix, and Don Sheedle. Come on, like. In this rare conversation with Terry, we talk about why he creates the films he does, what genocide has taught him about forgiveness, and the best piece of directing advice he's ever been given. If you've been a long-time listener of the show, you guys know that I've spent some time in Rwanda, and that has been a big part of my journey, a big part of my story. I was there for three months just after secondary school, working with a charity called Tear Fund to make a documentary and work in some of the schools over there. One of the things that led me to that place was watching Hotel Rwanda, and to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with the guy who made it has got to be one of the best experiences I've had on the podcast so far. So really, really excited to share this. So exciting. I don't think a lot of people know that there's an Oscar-winning film director from Belfast, <laughs> but here we are. I submit this conversation with Terry George to use proof, and I know it's one that you're really going to enjoy. So without further ado, let's get the show on the road, and let's hear from Terry himself. Hello, I'm Terry George, and you're listening to Best of Belfast. All right, guys, what's the crack? My name is Matthew Thompson, and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates our wee country, Northern Ireland. Each episode gives you the opportunity to get to know and learn from some of the incredible people who call this place home through our unfiltered conversations. The show is brought to you from our recording studio in Ormo Bass, Barclay Eagle Labs, a co-working space right here in the heart of the city centre. Support for Best of Belfast comes from our Producers Club, where listeners just like you pledge as little as £1 a month in exchange for exclusive perks, invitations to live podcasts, some Northern Irish swag, and much, much more. Massive, massive thank you to all of you who are part of that, especially our Titanic producers, Town Square Cafe, Gavin Wall, Ali Hart, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, and of course, the Omobass team. We could not do this show without our producers, and thanks to your support, we can keep it running and allowed to stay ad-free. So, really appreciate you. To find out more about the great work these guys do, and support us on our journey to 100 interviews, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Okay, that's it for me. Time to jump straight into today's conversation with this week's local legend. So like going back, what was it in you that made you pick up the pen? Like, have you always been someone who's been writing stuff? Or yeah, well, was it I, only when you came to America? Or kind of, what's that all about? No, I, I, it was, you know, I'd, I'd gone to Queens and done history and politics and dabbled at stuff. I never really had the opportunity in Ireland to do anything of any significance. Um, uh, so, but when I came over here, you know, I was def- definitely very interested in journalism. And, and then going into... Uh, New York Magazine um, and meeting up with like Pete Hamill and Taylor and 
and all these journalists I worked for. I then started. I, I, I at the same time that I was at New York Magazine, I was doing freelance journalism. I was writing music reviews for the Village Voice. <laughs> I was the first person to review the Pogues. Class, in America very good for Rolling Stone. Unreal snippet. Yeah, <laughs> I interviewed Shane McGowan in uh, where the hell was it? A hotel down near the village, and I tape recorded him and. Uh, Nobody at Rolling Stone could understand where he was saying. So I could, and he was saying to me, I asked him, like, so where do you get your inspiration? He was like, trying to put fucking, you're trying to put a fucking river in a box. In a, in a you know? <laughs> well, that was Shane. Um, and I do the Irish Voice newspaper, which was uh, the, the, a new uh, weekly newspaper. I wrote the the music column for it and different re- for cinema reviews and and journalism yeah so i was just g- getting by as a yeah, freelancer yeah. here yeah and why new york out of everywhere you could have gone in the states well because i'd met the new yorkers and uh i first come out here in 75 um uh just on a and uh, uh in the summer and worked in construction and knew people and then the contacts with uh, Pete Hamill and Michael Daly and uh, Johnny Hamill and those people, it seemed the natural place. And that's where, you know, at that time, the early, the late 70s, early 80s, there was a huge influx of Irish, you know, till, particularly to the Bronx, to Bainbridge Avenue. And, yeah. Um, so I was part of that wave, yeah. Yeah, cool. And is it, I mean, from an outsider looking in, it seems somewhat unusual for someone's first film to star, you know, someone like Daniel Day-Lewis and for it to be so big, like, was that uncommon? Well, did that, did you expect that was going to happen or what was the crack with that? But, I mean, it was it was through J- Sheridan yeah. because he'd already done My Love Foot with Dan, had a relationship with Daniel. Yeah. So we were already on the fast track, you That's know. That's amazing. Um, but then because of that, I was able to do Some Mother's Son with Helen Mirren and Fanula Flanagan. Yeah. Um, Aidan Gillen, who's now a big star, and David O'Hara. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah. So we kind of, you know, I lucked out through Jim. Yeah. Um, and we kind of rode that wave of the like Irish films in the late, in the early eighties. Yeah. Um, and did, I did, I did, in the name of the father. Then I directed some mother's son, and he helped me co-write it. And then I wrote The Boxer with him. So we did three mm. in a row, you know, kind yeah, of an yeah, Irish trilogy. Yeah. Do you prefer directing films that you've written? Yeah, it's, I find it... You know, it's basically I'm going to deconstruct a script anyway. Yeah. So it's better if I... The thing about film writing is um, you really got to know the the seeds and the genesis and the, uh, the build-up of a script because... Uh, and the reason for that is because it comes apart. It has to come apart quite often because the the reality of making a film requires that you dump stuff or or adapt to other actors or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got to. For me, I've got to know. I've got to know it like a child. So I've. I, I'm trying to think. I mean, I've taken scripts that I've liked and then adapted them. Whole lot of soul, which I did. I. I uh, was a script that I, I completely reworked 
But I, I have to be involved. I have to be at the center. I've never taken something and just not done a word and directed it off the page. Yeah, know? yeah. And what is it that you look out for? Like, how do you identify those seeds of a story or a story that you think grabs you? Like, Well, for me, it's usually a human, a nonfiction, a personal drama um, that that I think can amplify a political story and tell it through ordinary people. You know, I, 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 I go back to the journalism uh, that I originated from, and so I do look in the news and in history and look for a way, how can you enlighten the world through, um, through film, through telling a story? It's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, it's kind of old-fashioned in a way now because it's, <laughs> it's more what television does. But, um, but I'm always looking for usually what I call a working-class hero, the, the ordinary man mm. who's, who does extraordinary things that end up helping civilization. Yeah. Or ordinary women you know in the case of like some mother's son the two mothers who um basically carry the burden of that whole era that we went through yeah back in the uh, early, late 70s early 80s mm-hmm. um and that's what i that's what i look for most yeah you know? and would you say that in your own eyes that's kind of the key theme that runs across most of your work yeah yeah that's interesting pretty much all of it i can't you know whole lot of soul was a little light comedy that um so it, it it didn't have that, but the rest of it, if you look at it all, you know, obviously father, the boxer, some other son, Hotel Rwanda, you know, the promise even with the with Oscar Isaac's character and Christian Bale's, and uh, you know, yeah, pretty much all I've done has been around that, yeah, and all I aspire to do, you know, yeah. So talk to me about Rwanda. Well, that was, I mean. That for a while, I try to let me think now. In the early mid nineties, I'm coming up to the mid nineties, late nineties. That there was, you know, Rwanda had happened, and I'd witnessed that like everyone else, and said basically, "Oh, that's horrible," and, mm. and did go on eating my tea or whatever or my dinner. Sure, um, but I was more, I was more interested in terms of the, a, a film in the late 90s in what was going on in Liberia and Sierra Leone with the civil war there. And um, uh, and I started to research that and I was looking for a way of telling that story. And then my agent sent me a script uh, written by this young uh, video editor who was working actually at the New York Times, and um, a guy called Keir Pearson. Um, and I read that script, and it was about the Rwandan genocide, and in the and, and, the, and the, the the core of it was about this guy Paul Rusay Sabagina, and I and when I read that, I had that I it's exactly the characters I described, the working class hero. Yeah, know? yeah. So I knew that Kier had had been to Rwanda and had written this script, um, and then. I think he'd met Paul once, but he didn't have a deal with him. And, and at that time, HBO were, uh, I think they they were sort of talking with Paul, but they nobody had caught a deal with him or said anything. So I flew over to Brussels and met him, sat down and uh, hung out with his family for a few days and then basically wrote him a check for his the rights and started writing that because I really thought, wow, this guy's story is... Uh, incredible and then I went to uh, Rwanda with my daughter and 
kid to do research and um, traveled around, met all the people that Paul had saved, and um, mm. uh, and and put the, you know started to build up that story. Yeah. So just for some context for yeah. people listening, yeah, um, you know, tell the listeners about the the Mikulim. What was that, and why was that significant yeah. for Rwanda? Paul Ruse Sabagina had been the uh, the manager of uh, the Michelin Hotel, which is a, at that time was the foremost um, European luxury hotel in Kigali in Rwanda. Um, it was owned by Sabina Airlines, which was then the, the, national, the Belgian National Airline. And it was a reasonably sophisticated place. And Paul ha- had grown up uh, in the hotel industry and gone to hotel school in Switzerland, and he was a pretty sophisticated guy. He was, um, his ethnic origin was Tutsi, um, but he was married to a Hutu woman, uh, Tatiana. And then when the, when the genocide broke out on uh, April 24th, 1994, yeah, he, um, he fled the house that he was in with his wife and kids um, uh, to, to stay, uh, to find safety at the hotel. And, and then he started to bring in uh, people fearful for the Tutsi, mostly Tutsi uh, officials and refugees and people fearful of their lives uh, flocked to the hotel and he ended up creating a sanctuary there where he saved 300 Maybe slightly more lives of uh, refugees who 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 were being pursued by the genocide years, the Interahamwe. So he beca- he was this iconic figure of someone who had done something uh, within this mass slaughter of a million people being yeah. killed. What most surprised you about your trip to Rwanda and your time you spent there? Um, it's it's an extremely organized. Um, Stunningly beautiful country, were um, and the people were incredibly polite, and yet you knew that I'd gone there, and I'd say it was two thousand and one, two thousand and two, maybe. Um, I realized that just seven years before, they'd literally some of these people you're talking to had slaughtered their neighbors, and the most horrific genocide in that it was personal. People were mm. killed. Were literally slashing to death their their, their next-door neighbours. But the organisation of it... But at the same time, when I was there, I saw Northern Ireland in this place. Mm. I recognised right away the sectarian divisions and how fears that I'd seen back home being manipulated were even more... were amplified in Rwanda in that people's land was literally all they had to survive. This was an agrarian economy where people literally lived off the land. So if someone told you that these neighbours were going to steal your land, it meant you were going to starve to death pretty much or, or you know, your whole structure of life would be destroyed. Yeah, yeah. So that manipulation by the Hutu government and the extremists, I recognised that right away and I could see that. So the parallels were there in a much more... in a huge kind of horrifically amplified way um so, so i got that part of it and then it just became about 
how do you explain this to an audience? You know, you're trying to explain the incomprehensible and at the same time have have them identify with and see this story through Paul's eyes and, yeah. and Tatiana, you know, Sophie Okinado's role. So, and I, and I wrote the script along with Keir Pearson and and I tried to get it made with different produ- production companies in Hollywood. Uh, Beacon Pictures was one and they wanted Denzel Washington who didn't want to play an African or didn't want me to direct it. <laughs> Because that was the first time, like, who is this guy? <laughs> and then they wanted Will Smith. And all along, I had kind of written it with Don Cheadle in mind. Yeah. So we had to go through an evolution of going through all this. And then finally, we we got the film made with basically putting together money from British money, Italian, Canadian, you know, and a lot of South African uh, government money. Um with Don Cheadle in the lead and Sophie, so yeah, it was it was really a sort of a lesson in independent filmmaking. Yeah, big time. Mm. How do you manage the dynamic between representing something on the screen that involves real life people? If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, it's an important question, and because it, the thing about film is, you're never going to capture the. Uh, the reality of a non-fiction book uh, in all its factual detail. And you're not a documentary. You're, I, I'm there to, to take, the, take the facts and distill them down. You know, it's like taking grapes from our wine and then making it into brandy or whatever. <laughs> you're literally, and I make that uh, like sort of use that comparison often because you are distilling the reality down into two hours usually yeah. two hours and and you but i've i've learned and and even from the start with in the name of the father and and we were accused of an and we've always been accused of it i've always been accused of inaccuracy and sheridan i uh but we've all the the essential facts we've always maintained and we've never distorted the facts to, to come up with a different uh conclusion to what the reality is i mean we got fucking dismembered in the british press for in the name of the father and lo and behold 10 years later tony brower turns around and says yeah it's true <laughs> and i apologize to the families and i really you know yeah and, yeah, yeah. And yeah the whole thing was true um and the press were going ape shit about oh they don't say please approach the british in a british court and Jerry Conlon wasn't in the same cell as his father. Yeah. No, he wasn't. He was in the next one for most of the yeah. time, you know? Yeah. That sort of stuff was like getting thrown at us. So I've learned that, I mean, and it's a, it's a, it's a vital argument and question in filmmaking, you know, people who take true stories and suddenly the conclusion comes out a different way. I've learned to like really catalog what I'm doing and put down, here's this event that led A, led to B, and I've compressed C and D together, but the, the, the essence is still true, you know? Yeah. Because you really are, for better or worse, this is most people's history today. People understand the, the, the Holocaust through Schindler's List. They understand the Cambodian genocide through the killing fields, and they understand the, the Rwandan genocide through Hotel Rwanda. So yeah. you have a responsibility to Hitler, or to to Hitler you have a responsibility to history and to the future and and I'm very aware of that yeah what is the role 
because you're a bit of a hybrid in terms of you bring the writing and you bring the directing how much influence does a director have over the script or what do you think the role of a director truly is in that storytelling process well i mean you're translate you're translating from page to screen it's a big jump it's the visualization the impression within people's heads you're you're imagining that yourself so with me with writing it i already have that picture in my mm. head of how i see that evolving now i wouldn't say i'm the greatest visual director in the world because i come from a journalism school and therefore i think more in terms of the the narrative and the building blocks of conversation and so forth yeah whereas other people paint pictures like with virtually no words at all you know the great the greatest cinematographer greatest directors um but i do think that there's that that the director is there to paint paint the canvas uh you know and you move the camera and so forth so they're they're the they're ultimately the creator of it um along with the obviously the actors bring whatever their their enormous talent you're you're basically you're a traffic warden almost with me i like to just you know i've always been lucky with the greatest actors in the world and just stand back and quite often they'll say well you know i this line's difficult and i'm not sure about this and i'll just tell them say whatever you want and out it comes because they're wow. working within the context of the uh, the story itself you know yeah um so yeah my thing of directing is like how the best people and stand back and <laughs> it. and usually it's all about the time you spend on something you know? yeah in those moments where maybe there aren't any but in the moments where maybe you do have to step in and give a little bit of direction yeah how do you go about doing that um without ruffling the feathers of the kind of the star that's in front of you well, you know, stars are usually stars because they're they're, they're so talented. So, you, yeah, you very often don't worry have to worry so much about them. And, you mm. know, I mean, Helen Mirren gave me the greatest directing advice I've ever had. She said, "Listen, Terry, <laughs> Terry, listen. <laughs> There's only four directions I ever need: faster or slower, less or more." Wow! That for good actors, that's literally all you need. Nice you know, sometimes other people want interpretation of what 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 your vision is or what you interpret the scene or what's being said. So you talk them through it. It's all it's all whatever anyone needs in any given time. And yeah. look, if you get if I get into a row with someone which is very rare about something, I'll say to them, "Okay, let's do it your way and do it my way." And now they know that I have ultimate control in the edit room. But I'm going to have a look, see, and see what they have to bring to bear because you can't just say, do it. You know, and there, I know there are directors who like literally just try to turn their their actors into putty. You know, they mm. wear them down with like 100 takes and stuff like that. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't have the time or the luxury <laughs> or the to do that. You know, I've never, yeah, yeah. I've never, nor do I have the, what's the word? Self esteem, self fucking. Uh, just you know the the, the kind of uh, arrogance to do that make somebody <laughs> do something 70 times yeah 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 you know? sure I don't see what value you get out of it yeah but that's not to say it isn't listen Stanley Kubrick used to do it all the time he'd beat them down until a pulp mm. 
and then and produce great movies. Yeah. Who did you learn from, and from a directing point of view? Sheridan mostly. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't. You know, the street. I never went to film school or any of that, or journalism school, or blah blah blah. You know, Queen's University, and even then, I didn't finish. <laughs> um, was was it? So it was. It's just intuitive within yourself of what you want up on screen, and I don't. I'm not the best with lenses and. Um, I've, I've, twenty years on, I've learned, but um, it's yeah, it's more about just being honest about uh, what the story you're telling, trying to entertain people. That's because of the subject matter that I do. It's not on the face of it inherently entertaining. Mm. You know, IRA hunger strike. Jerry Conlon, Rwandan genocide, you wouldn't be jumping up and down sure. initially. But I've always in the back of my mind, what, how, how are we going to entertain people? How are they going to feel that they got what they wanted for their £15 or £12 or whatever, $20? Um, and, and because of that, my definition of entertainment is pretty broad. It has to do with... Um, a story captivating, moving, angering, um, you know, making people sad, but uh, ultimately fulfilling and, and walking out of the, the cinema feeling that they've learned something and they're inspired by what they saw. That's, that, for me, that's a form of entertainment. It's not about, you know, you know dirty jokes or blowing things up or bang, bang, sure. bang and all that. It's more, uh, you know, and I go, but because of, for me, the you know my greatest, my top ten films are, you know Warren Beatty's Reds, The Godfather, Schindler's List, The Killing Fields, Costa Gravis. Movies that you remember for a long time afterwards, and I hope that that's what we sort of aspire to. You know. Yeah, this maybe is a bit of a left field sort of question, but what has been involved? in telling stories of genocide taught you about forgiveness, if anything? <sighs> yeah, a, a lot. Um, that it's, you know, that it's fundamental to human um, existence, human kindness to humanity itself, that it, it's central to that, but that it's not an easy commodity to uh, to invest in. I mean, we can forgive people on, you know, on a micro level, on the smaller stuff, and people sometimes overindulge in that. But on the bigger issues of, um, you know, things that enrage us and that... Uh, um, and drive along our passions and our and our actions. Yeah, you, you have to. You have to really look at it from both sides. You've got to try to get inside the other person's head, and see the the argument or the position from within that context in order to to to, to have a full, a fuller understanding of the problem itself, and then hopefully from that will come. A sense of understanding and ultimately forgiveness if you feel you've been wronged or whatever. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I don't, 
I'm trying to think now that um, I don't know that Paul's I don't know the Hotel Rwanda was based on that was more about human kindness and survival you yeah. know I know Jerry Conlon went through life quite bitter but came to terms with what had happened and struggled at the end of his life um, to help others and further you know the, these particularly wrong, uh, wrongly incarcerated people yeah but it is, you know, and, and and you know, and in terms of our own situation in Northern Ireland, I think we had got to a place of forgiveness, and we've started to retreat back into our own tribal walls. Yeah, you know, and that, and and I think that's come through the wearing down of just the the kind of um, good feeling and. Uh, uh, exuberance after the uh, you know the Good Friday Agreement and so forth so that's kind of dangerous you know and we do have I mean the sectarian divide hasn't gone away in Northern Ireland that's that's one of the saddest things because I thought we might have evolved out of that but it has so much to do with economics and poverty and, and lack of uh, possibility you know yeah because I was in Rwanda in 2013 right. and I was only there for three months hmm. but I remember I like really like what you said of how you saw Northern Ireland in that because I, yeah. you know, I, I am a child of the Good Friday yeah, Agreement yeah, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But I went and I was shocked to see how far a country like that has been able to come forward yeah. in comparison to our own. I just found that very interesting. The only, I get it, but the comparison in Rwanda is also that what has happened in Rwanda, and this is kind of dangerous, you, you have one very strong leader a dictator essentially because he's you know he gets elected with 96 percent of the vote <laughs> yeah which is impossible given that 70 percent of the population are still tutsi <laughs> you know it's just the, the math yeah like yeah something's not right there and he has imposed that um he has imposed his will on the countryside and changed it economically like beyond belief but at the same time I don't know that he's reconciled the two communities. I think he's trying to eliminate the notion of two communities, and I'm not sure that you can do that. But at the same time, I also don't think you can export Western democracy to Rwanda and say, oh, okay, let's have an open vote here and see what happens. So it's a, it's an interesting, it's it's a sort of interesting discussion that I've, I've talked to other people about. Bono, I, I talked to him about it because what... You know, clearly, Western democracy does is not exportable all the time around the world, despite the way some politicians would have you believe. So, do ordinary people in the street give a shit about Western democracy in Rwanda? I don't think so. Um, but there are there, there's there's problems there that need to be reconciled. Yeah. You know, even zooming out from the the democracy piece, do you think that there is danger in kind of the exporting of western culture and value into it's huge huge because that's something i've noticed like i haven't you know i've only been to a couple of places i was in nepal and i was in rwanda and those places made me feel I suppose the only way would be it made me feel uneasy to see that happening yeah no because, well totally and and what it's created and people have to understand this. And I remember this from an incident in Rwanda, actually, where I was going up to see the gorillas in the Virunga, in the park. And um, uh, 
And my daughter and I stopped in the morning. We, there was nowhere open to eat, and we stopped at a little store in this village, just basically, and we went in there, and they had basically ma- uh, Mary biscuits and water for sale and whatever else. But in the corner, there was like 10 young guys, I'd say from 12 to 16 or whatever, standing there, and they were watching TV, and it was African MTV. And on the, there was a video of, I think it was 50 Cent or someone, with all this bling bling and on top of big, you know, Mercedes sports cars and, you know, driving around. And then they're in Miami with, you know, women in bikinis and they're on a huge yacht. And I'm looking over and these kids are watching this, looking up at that. I'm like this because, you know, their, their, their elder brothers had probably slaughtered people 10 years before. And, and I, I never forget that image because I thought, okay, they're not going to get what they want mm. here in Rwanda. So they're either going south to South Africa or they're going north to Europe. Yeah. But they're not going to hang around. Yeah. You know? And we're creating a culture of, you know, the the bling-bling culture of here. You have this and how wonderful it is and showing it around the world to people that have nothing and who are ultimately 10 times tougher than you are mm. because they've understood hunger uh, and cold and deprivation, and they will do anything to get out of that situation, just as anyone would. And so that that yeah, cultural imperialism. Fidel Castro actually said this to me. Right, to a group of us as filmmakers. He said, "Cultural imperialism is the atom bomb of the 21st century." He was right. He was totally right. That was that was in the Havana at the. The Palais of Justice, and he gave a speech to us. What 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 put you in conversation with Castro? How did that happen? Well, we, it was a, it was a group of I was down at the Havana Film Festival, and there was a bunch of us filmmakers that um, were invited to go meet and listen to him speak and so forth, and it was amazing. Because um, I went there. It was early in the morning, and apparently he'd been up all night to speaking to like the young communist. Uh, but he came out and he d- delivered this speech, and it was in Spanish, but I had earphones on. But it was half of it was like stand-up comedy. He was amazing. <laughs> um, but then he comes out with this stuff, you know, and you're like, holy moly! But I'll never forget that cultural imperialism is the atom bomb of the twenty-first century. Wow. Um, so and he's, you know exactly. And and now we have this wave of immigrants from the have-nots from Africa, from the Middle East, which you know has been devastated by us. I'm actually trying to do. Uh, I'm adapting a book now called "The Disappearance in Damascus," which is about the roots of the uh, the refugee crisis in uh, in the Middle East, in Syria, Iraq, um, and and that just you know the devastation that has been wrought and where those people are going and how it's affected Europe now and the way Americans deal about immigration again is yeah. sort of so yeah it's, it's all, it all has you know it all it's interlocking yeah big time mm. going to switch gears a wee bit and I'm curious to know little elements about maybe your workflow if there's even mm. such a thing so Again, as an outsider looking in to the kind of movie making business, it's a lot of big project to big project sort of work. Is that yeah. fair to say? 
Yeah, it's, um, some. I mean, there's smaller stuff too, but a, a lot of it tends to be um, like at the minute I'm doing that. I have a book I'm adopting, which is actually um, a bit of a departure for me about a, a an ultra long distance runner, an Australian guy who who does these 125 mile races. Wow! And, and he he was running across the Gobi Desert in northern China. And this little dog started to follow him, <laughs> and and it's the story of him trying to rescue this dog. But it, but it has you know bigger social impact. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm I'm sort of adapting that. But there's there's the disappearance in Damascus book, and I also have a TV series I'm pitching about the 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 ceasefire, the IRA ceasefire, and the the build up to that. Mm. Because the kind of machinations that went on and the political intrigue are fascinating. Yeah. Um, so do you go through different seasons of you know in a season you're writing, one season you're pitching, the next season you're no. directing? What? Where does that work for you? I just um, like I, the book, the Damascus book. I read a review in this thing called Kirkus Reviews, which reviews books, which I read all the time. And I just thought this was great, and I contacted the author and bought the rights to it. It's a pretty hard thing to sell at the minute, but I've, I've, I'm actually working with a Northern Ireland company, um, Fine Point, the guys who did the Lachlan Island documentary, Brilliant. to do this as a, a, a feature drama with a Canadian company. Um, so I'll see stuff uh, and then get into it, and, and then if it takes on legs, I don't have a... I you know I don't have a, a company because, um, you know you put you put thing, things together for a film and then it all it fades away and then you go yeah, on to yeah. the next one yeah so it's kind of like that it's much more nomadic um, and I've just come off like three years on the uh, Armenian genocide movie that took a long while to get made and and you know promote and so forth um, so yeah whatever you know. Throw the shit at the wall and see what sticks. <laughs> That's basically my philosophy. Nice one. Uh, so we always end these kind of conversations. There's a couple of stock questions I ask everybody just to kind of see what their um, response is. The first one is one we love asking the Northern Irish people because it's a wee bit of a, a cultural nuance. But it's tell us about a moment in your life where you felt very successful. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, you know. My children being born is like always the most successful thing, you know. Yeah. But I guess I mean obviously, the winning the Oscar mm. is sort of obvious one. Though that was that was kind of funny because the uh, Orla, my daughter and I, she was produced it. She got the Oscar as well. We'd both bought new shoes that day, and then we didn't realize <laughs> that. Um, that the carpet on the and the uh, the Kodak theater thing was like a skating rink, so we were <laughs> we were literally sliding down the steps. And then I got up, and I didn't have a speech written, but I had a notion in my head I was yeah. going to say something about Northern Ireland and the peace process. But as I started to talk, I felt I felt my legs shaking, and I thought, Jesus, calm down. <laughs> and then I realized I, I the phone switched on vibrate. And everybody in the world that knew me was trying to text at the same time. <laughs> so it was vibrating like crazy. And it was getting really hot. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm going to burst into flames here. I'll be the first one. There. So, so that was kind of memorable for that. And um, yeah, 
and you know there's other there's there's moments of um just when you uh when something clicks you know that that you feel really proud of mm. the um the premiere of hotel rwanda in toronto was like a unique experience you know um yeah those sort of things Manchester United winning the uh, <laughs> UEFA Cup next year. <laughs> yeah. To go back to the, the premiere, yeah. what was it like to watch people, like a mass audience, react to that movie? It was kind of amazing. They were carrying them. It was it was shocking in a way. Yeah, women were being like carried out in tears, and yeah. you know, I I was sort of taken aback by just how impactful. Because you don't. The, 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 here's the thing about film. You're right. The filmmaker never has the opportunity to see his own film the way it should. To walk in and see something as a clean slate and watch it. From the day you write the script, it's always... Film is a glorified corpse. Right. Theater, on the other hand, (laughs) theater is a living organism. Glorified corpse. Sometimes it's glorified. Sometimes it's rotten. <laughs> but it's been dead. It's been dead for months, maybe a year. Mm. The, the script itself has been evolved over three years. So you, by the time you get there, and it's why often you you wonder how people, you know, great directors, good directors, talented directors, actors, or something could be so invested in something that went wrong mm. because they've held on to something and they have this blinkered view of it yeah, yeah. and you don't yeah honestly don't know until it's up there and going you know yeah you have a sense that something's good or not yeah but but people can be very delusional about their work you know yeah and it's not that they're lying they're just so invested in it they mm-hmm. see it in a different way so yeah that that, that, that premiere was an eye-opener and there was like 15 minutes of applause which happens in Cannes all the time but never happens <laughs> in toronto this was in toronto canada where they're out the door in two minutes yeah and we had Paul there, and all. so that was. And I, I, I had a sense then. Okay, this because we thought, you know, we're going to show this in a couple of film festivals, and that'll be it. Yeah. So that that yeah that was that was cool. Brilliant. Yeah. The other kind of other half to that question is tell us about um, a challenge that you faced in your life, or we sometimes say the most challenging moment of your life, and how you were able to overcome it. Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> we always do these ones at the end in case they, they, they get a wee bit sour and I need to run away <laughs> I'm pass on that one I don't know what challenge although to be fair here I don't know how I would run <laughs> yeah um, wow that, that's difficult on a lot of levels you know I mean look people know my back history of Northern Ireland and the troubles of being locked up and coming out of long and afterwards and there were people around me who died and relatives who died um, and trying to get a perspective on that and stand back and, and then write about it and at the same time even though I mean I've been accused of being biased on the Republican side or whatever but I've never I've always tried to write from a perspective of what people were doing and never and never tried to some of Margaret Thatcher's people maybe never tried to slander anyone or whatever or or paint them 
in a in a crude primitivist way. Um, so, it, interpreting that, interpreting your own life story, and trying to find balance in it, and then give something back. And I think you know, I think, I think if people see those films now. They might. They, I hope they think we've given something back, or at least given an explanation of one mm. side. Mm. You know. Um, so yeah, that that that's been that that's that's a challenge. Yeah. And then you know, living here when we first came over as immigrants, every day was a challenge. But you realized, you know, you know, you realized the great thing about coming to New York when you were. In that era, when you were Irish, was you for the first time you felt you were a part of something, you know? Yeah. That was that was that was yeah, that was good. Good. What do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. What? What? what you, I hope that I told stories that changed people's opinion. Sometimes changed their lives. I think Hotel Rwanda had an effect way beyond anything we any of us expected. Mm. I mean, George Bush watched it twice, and and his Africa policy was actually very good. Yeah, and the whole Darfur campaign used Hotel Rwanda as a springboard. So, if I have left a piece of history behind that people can understand and do better things because of, that would be great. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Well, even on the micro level, like Hotel Rwanda was one of the reasons why I'm yeah. so chuffed to be sitting here today is it was a big part of one of the reasons it kind of pushed me towards, yeah. you know, being there. And that was an experience. It was only three months, but it's yeah. completely changed the trajectory of my well, life. Three you know? months was quite a, how long ago was that now? Um, about six years. Right. Yeah. So it had evolved quite a bit. It's been, I can't go back to Rwanda. I'm kind of on the public enemies list because of Paul Rousse Sabagina. Yeah. Strangely enough, you know, they... They've spent a lot of time denouncing Hotel Rwanda. <laughs> and I don't want to... I've, I've tried to avoid the argument because it... But basically all the arguments they've put forward, I could I can demolish in an instant. Because yeah, yeah, I yeah. actually interviewed... Uh, you know, I actually interviewed some of the people who are denouncing me and have have video of them saying the complete opposite. But I'm not going to get in. Sure. They, have, they have greater challenges, you know, and there's greater issues to be going on with. And... and and I sat next to President Kagame when we screened the film, and he thought it was wonderful, and he laughed at himself. And then a month later, because Paul Rousse Sabagina wrote a book denouncing him, they turned on us right away. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, but it's that you know, it's there as one of the you know a I hope a really human story on genocide. And I've gone on you know the army. I'm very proud of the Armenian one. Mm. Didn't have the same success, but. But I mean, people in Armenia adore it and feel that their story's been told. Yeah. So yeah. A much later question. Well, yeah. depends which way you take it. Um, something we always ask is if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for coffee, dead or alive, who would you take? Where would you take them, and why? That's a good one. It requires a little bit of thought. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, I don't know. I guess I can't say my ma, my da. But um, you can say that if you want. Yeah, you know. Well, my da, because he died young. He was fifty-one, and he died before I 
left mm. the Northern Ireland. They died in um, 79. Um, so, and he'd no, he'd no real acquaintance with the, the adult me, you know? Yeah. That, that, that would be good. And um, at the minute, you know, I wouldn't mind taking Van Morrison out here and like getting <laughs> abuse. I've met Van, <laughs> but he, um, I mean, Van is just so unique to Northern Ireland, such a genius, and and you know, and so part of our culture now of what you know yeah. that notion that we have of ourselves that we're cooler than people think we are. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he, you know, I've talked to Jimmy Dornan about this quite a bit <laughs> because we're both like rabid Van Morrison fans. <laughs> and I actually like live on Coney Island now outside our glass, you know, my house. Um, but yeah, yeah, so that, so my dad and Van Morrison, I don't know if they'd get along. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. class. Yeah. Terry, final question. Uh, how, how old were you when you, um, when you moved to New York? Okay, let me count back. Roughly. Ballpark it. Yeah. But, um, let me see. 28. 28. So if we could turn this living room into... What's that, 28? Hold on, I have to do the math. Do it. <laughs> Fact check yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 28? Yep. So let's say we turn this living room into some form of time machine. You go mm. back. You've got a couple of minutes of 28-year-old Terry's time. Mm. What sort of stuff? Would you be saying to him? Twenty-eight year old or twenty year old? Twenty-eight. Um, what would I be saying? Yeah, that's these are good philosophical questions as well. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, the the the, the dice have always fell right for me. Um. The, uh, I don't, I have no regret. The only regret, yeah, what would I be saying? Don't be such a, you know, focus better, you know. Don't be such a procrastinator. Just <laughs> be, here's the thing I'd say. Try to understand that your work is really important and you need to, you need to treat it <laughs> with more, with more diligence you know, because I tend to, um, I tend to underestimate sometimes what what you're doing. You know, and I can procrastinate and bullshit and all that. There, I'd love to have got much more done. That's all. Yeah. I was researching Val Morrison on the bus in because yeah. uh, I'd love to get him on the show, yeah. and I literally just shook my head. Forty albums. I know. You see, mm. but it, but that's there are people like I talked about uh, Pete Hamill. Pete Hamill's now 84. I've worked, you know, known him. He's my son's godfather. Known his whole family all my life over here. I forget how many books. He's never, he never stops writing. <laughs> he's 84 now. He's on dialysis. He's writing his latest book. And the van's got 40 albums out. And, you know, you're like, some people have that work ethic. And Van just talks about, it's always about the work. You know, whether he's doing... Madison Square Garden or dinner theater at the Culloden or whatever. It's the work. And that's true. And, and, and sadly, with me, get, making a film takes like three years. Mm. So you're not going to... No. You know, <laughs> no, you know, 
there are directors. Spike Lee I've worked with, and Spike can just churn them out. And obviously, um, Woody Allen does one every year and so forth. But, but yeah, but yeah, do more, work harder. That's it. How many more do you think you want to do? I just keep doing it. This, this is something that till you till you can't get it made anymore. Yeah. That that becomes the indicator. Though the industry is now much more geared, the evolution of film because of you know the super the the, the Marvel superhero uh, kind of what I call the amusement park films are basically <laughs> different. That's taken over the industry and it becomes harder and harder to get stuff made. Yeah, I think I'll be told when to stop before I stop. <laughs> um, what will you do then? Get carried out in a box. <laughs> fish, fish is my, my great passion. I, I fish. That's that's my. I fish, therefore I am. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, Terry, thank you very much. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, man. Cheers, great. Brilliant stuff. Absolutely unbelievable, Terry. I mean, thank you so much for making that happen. Uh, again not something that i ever expected to have the opportunity to do thank you for carving the time out to sit down and chat i i really really appreciate it and this interview will always be something that i'll look back on with a lot of joy and a lot of pride so thank you even personally for that opportunity and for sharing everything you did with the good folks listening if it is your first time listening, or even if it's not your first time, I always give, sometimes I feel like car insurance where like <laughs> I treat I treat the new people better than I do the old people. So, you know, screw the new people for a second. Regular listeners, thank you so, so much, honestly. Without you, the show just wouldn't exist. And especially for all you guys in the Producers Club, the people who support the show financially. I mean, honestly, it's because of your support that we were able to actually spend the money to go out and see Terry. I'm not even joking. It was a moment where... Terry was like, yes, I'm free at this time. Can you meet me in this place? It was a decent journey away. And beforehand, I would have to really weigh up if I could afford it or not. But straight away, because of the money from the Producers Club, I was like, yes, no problem at all. This is good for the show. This is great content for the listeners. And I'm absolutely there. So honestly, please take pride in knowing that this interview is only possible because of you, as are all the other ones as well. So yes, thank you. Now, for these new scallywags, you lower tier listeners... (laughs) Okay, you could swing too far the other way, can't you? No, but seriously, if it's your first time listening, thank you very much for making it all the way through. We've done over 60 of these. 60 of these are long conversations with incredible people from Northern Ireland. I mean, the list is incredibly long. If you listen to every... This is crazy. If you listen to every single episode, it would take you over two days. Or it would take you like, I don't know. Hang on, let me figure it out in my head. If you were listening to one episode a day, commuting to work... It's over 10 weeks. Oh, my word. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of great content out there. There's a lot of stories from people that I know for a fact you'd be interested in. Head to bestbelfast.org to have a look at our back catalog to see who all we've had the opportunity to sit down and chat with. Bestbelfast.org is also where you can sign up to our email newsletter and join the Producers Club to support the show financially for as little as £1 a month. My email inbox is open, as always, if you'd like to continue the conversation or just reach out to say hello. It's matthew at bestbelfast.org, and I would really love to hear from you. Alrighty, anything else to talk about? Where are we at? Third week? Nope. Next week, we have our last episode in our little New York miniseries, and that brings us nicely into September, into kind of the start of a new semester, a new year for a lot of people. And we've already bagged some great guests. Bagged sounds so aggressive, doesn't it? 
Ugh. We've already sat down and recorded conversations with incredible people that we are excited to share with you. How about that? Okay, time to wrap it up. My name is Matthew Thompson. This is Best of Belfast. And until next Monday morning, all the best. Cheers. Hi, I'm Rebecca, creative at Lines and Current, an online jewellery and accessories brand. And I live in East Belfast with my husband, John, who also works on our business with me and our three kids. I like listening to the Best of Belfast podcast because I really love to hear the nitty gritty stuff that comes with those types of unfiltered conversations that Matt has with his local guests. I'd say my favourite episode was probably that one with Grace Chambers, the 91-year-old parkrun record holder. I think for us, um, we really like what Matt is doing and we've loved supporting what he's doing. Um, He seems to just be shining a light on the Northern Irish people, community and exposing all those untold stories. So yeah, if you've been on the fence about joining the Producers Club and you'd miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't there, I'd recommend you consider joining today. You can do so over at bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to seeing you in the WhatsApp group soon.